Hell Fanboy, episode 53. Hi everybody, Mario Francisco Robles MFR here with you, and this is the 53rd edition of the El Fanboy Podcast. How's everybody doing out there? It is a, it is a particularly hectic morning here at RTF Central, aka my house. Uh, today's just it, just the way that the stars have aligned, it is a crazy day. You know, this morning we had the uh, dropping of the Avengers Infinity War trailer, which I'll talk about in a little bit. We have the uh, the tickets going on sale at 9 a.m., just as I exclusively reported to y'all on the Twitter earlier this week, as I sort of nonchalantly dropped my first ever, like, Marvel scoopage, mind you. Uh, I don't know if anyone noticed that, but, you know, I, I don't tend to break a lot of Marvel stories, or, or ever, really. I tend to be more of a DC guy, but now I'm officially starting to get Marvel uh, Intel. I, I Now I have spies on the Marvel end of things, and that's sort of exciting. So uh, keep an eye out for, for little tidbits about, you know, things from Marvel, things from uh, the Fox uh, X-Men Marvel movies, and so on and so forth. But either way, I digress. So the trailer dropped this morning. The tickets went on sale. I put together the plan for the official Revengers Infinity War watch party for this film, which, again, I'll get to that also a little later on when we get to that sort of stuff. Uh, in about an hour's time, I'm going to be interviewing a TV star. Uh, then, also, today's Friday, so, you know, Sebastian doesn't go to school on Friday, so he's currently in the living room uh, watching some Dragon King on Netflix. That's his favorite cartoon, so he's doing that while Daddy records his podcast. Uh, later tonight, I'm DJing a big-time wedding for a friend of mine, and it's funny, because you'd think, you know, ordinarily when you work for a friend, it could be less pressure. Because like, oh, it's a friend of mine, and no matter what happens, you know, the friend knows me, and everything is uh, all good. But for me, it's the opposite. Whenever I'm working for someone I know, and th this person's a co-worker, and then, you know, friend through work, um, you know, I for me, the pressure actually ratchets up even higher, because like, I really don't want to let them down. You know, I, I put a lot of pressure on myself to do an amazing job. And my, you know, my friend Kevin is getting married tonight. He has 164 guests coming. I am the sole entertainment. So I've got that on my mind. Then, you know, I had to write a couple of stories. I had to cover the new gods thing. I had to share the trailer with you. Uh, Matt Vernier, who writes for the site, doesn't write for me on Fridays. So I'm kind of alone on Fridays. And yeah, I do have Donald who's going to put up some stories in a little bit. Uh, I just, I'm juggling a lot of different things and I'm trying to sneak in an awful lot with an awful uh, short amount of time. So let's start off with uh, the big you know, the big news from last night about Ava DuVernay and New Gods and uh, the potential for some interesting bochinche that uh, could be coming after this or part of this. You know. So, okay. Yesterday, I went to go see A Wrinkle in Time with my kids. Totally sort of spur of the moment. I was not planning on seeing this movie at all. But yesterday, we had a long day without mommy around. You know, my wife's a school teacher in the Bronx, as I've mentioned in the past, and she had to stay late for parent-teacher conferences, so she wouldn't be home until 8. Meanwhile, my daughter, you know, had a half day, and she was out at, at 11.40, and my son got out at noon, so we had a whole day to fill, and I'm like, you know what? 
I want to take my kids out to see a movie. I looked at the available options and that seemed like the way to go. So we went to go see A Wrinkle in Time and I didn't love it. I actually, you know, and it's funny too, because I went in there with like very minimalistic expectations. You know, this movie was not on my radar at all. I never read the books. I I, I have no real preconceived notions I just went in with a with a slightly optimistic sense of I'm going to give this film a shot. It's probably influenced by the fact that on our way to the theater, I started my fifth audiobook, which is based on The Princess Bride, a, a favorite of mine, an all-time favorite of mine, the uh, the Rob Reiner movie, The Princess Bride from the 80s. There's a book written by Carrie Elwes where he actually reads it and narrates it and does the whole audio, you know, the audible thing. And by coincidence, on our way to the theater, I started that book in the car, and he talks about the fact that, you know, the film didn't do so hot when it first came out, because Hollywood and the industry tends to have trouble with films that they can't put into a box, with films that they cannot quickly just categorize as, all right, this is a fantasy, or this is an action movie, or this is a satire, or this is a romance. And for anyone who's seen The Princess Bride, it's that kind of a film. It's kind of a little bit of everything. It's a very unique film that I, I, I would dare say has not been touched since in terms of the way it so seamlessly melds all these different genres. So I was listening to that and I'm like, you know what? That might be what happened with A Wrinkle in Time, because based on the trailers, it seems to be a little of this, a little of that. So maybe people were too hard on it. So when I sat down in the theater to check it out with my kiddies, I'm over here thinking, all right, you know what? I'm going to give this thing a chance. You know, the reviews seem to say it's 50-50. You either love it or you hate it. And I'm like, you know what? I'm going to see if maybe the people who hated it were just being closed-minded. And that's the mindset I went in there with. And as it turns out, I just kind of went along with the people who didn't like it. I don't know. I'm not going to do like a full-fledged review of the film here since I don't really consider that like fanboy news. I don't consider it part of what you're here for. But in a nutshell, to me, it was just sort of an unruly mess. And that may be because of the script. Maybe the book was just too difficult to handle and no one should have attempted it. Then maybe maybe Ava DuVernay deserves some sort of pass here. I don't know. I kind of don't think so because some of my issues did lie in her direction. Um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it felt like here's a film that has this whimsical tale of, you know, it's fantasy, it's magical. You have this... This, this young female protagonist and these characters that are almost like fairy godmothers guiding her on this, this fantastical tale, trying to find her father and possibly even save the world. I don't know. That, that's one of the things, too. The stakes seem to kind of go all over the place. Is this a personal thing for her or is she saving the planet? Are these fairy godmothers infinitely magical or are they also under siege? That was unclear. Um but yeah, for a film with all of those kinds of magical fantasy trappings, it felt oddly like she tried to direct the actors to play it grounded. And that seemed sort of strange to me. Everyone's very like soft-spoken. You know, you see Oprah Winfrey there in this insane costume with this insane hair and in this crazy colorful world. And she kind of talks like this the whole time. And a lot of times... Everyone in the film seems to be sort of whispering and they're trying to underplay the moment rather than bring it up a notch and, and kind of meet the theatricality of the settings. 
And to me, you know, that seemed like a choice that Ava DuVernay made. You know, regardless of whether or not the script's a mess, she seemed to want to, like, underplay the fantasy stuff in a story that is clearly fantastical. Um, so for me, it just sort of seemed at odds. You had these sort of quiet, more uh, thoughtful performances from the actors in a tale that really begged for something a little more heightened. Um and just in general, I don't know, I just, I had a hard time engaging. Were there some beautiful moments? Sure, there were a couple of moments there. I'm a big softy for anything about a father and his kids and reconnecting. And, and you know, and the movie has some absolutely poetically gorgeous things to say about humanity and people and how we should treat one another and how we should confront fear. And, you know, the space between us is only really as, as thick and dense as we allow it to be. Sometimes you just have to overcome that fear and reach out towards someone and share your love with them. And you could save their life and your own, and you have to embrace your faults. And, you know, like it's full of beautiful ideas, but I just found it to be just bogged down with an unruly narrative, uneven directing, some strange choices made behind the camera, and unfortunately, an A-list cast that wasn't used to full effect. So that was kind of my take. And then here's the funny thing. The credits start to roll. I turn my phone back on. I'm walking out with the kids. We're about to go get some pizza and ice cream. And all of a sudden, I get bombarded with stuff about this breaking news about Ava DuVernay is directing the new gods for DC. And I swear it could not have come at the worst time, you know, because had I not just walked out of a wrinkle in time thinking, God, that was a mess. I might've celebrated this news, but since a wrinkle in time left such a, you know, a sour taste in my mouth, this just, it, it, it hit me the wrong way. It just, me tocó mal. it just, I don't know. It's, I, I don't know. Listen, this is not a knock on uh, Miss DuVernay. Listen, every director has a dud. And, you know, some directors, it takes a bit of a learning curve when they go from more intimate stories to big time blockbusters. We've seen that happen many times before. Heck, even Christopher Nolan, who, you know, when he made the jump from making little movies like Memento and Insomnia and suddenly he made Batman Begins, there was a bit of a learning curve there. There were some growing pains. Remember, Batman Begins is my favorite of his Dark Knight trilogy, more than the Dark Knight. And even there, you know, you got to admit, the action looked horrendous. He, at the time, he did not know how to film an action scene, and all of the fight scenes were shot with all of this shaky cam, very claustrophobic. You couldn't tell who was hitting who. And I remember feeling like it's it's a shame, too, because if you watch the behind the scenes on Batman Begins, you'll learn that the fight choreographers actually invented a whole new martial art just for this movie, like a bat-foo, so to speak. And when you watch the movie, you don't even get to enjoy all the ingenuity and all the work and creativity that went into coming up with his fight style because Nolan put the camera right up everyone's ass. So listen, everyone kind of has some growing pains and, you know, we, we, we've seen some rise above it, like Nolan eventually seemed to get the hang of it. And then you have ones like, uh, I believe, what's his name? Um, Mark, I don't even want to go into it right now. The guy who did X-Men Origins Wolverine and uh, and also the guy who did Quantum of Solace. You know, these are actors who, you know, these are directors who went from the indie world into the blockbuster world and uh, to, to less than exciting results. So, you know, not everyone is, not every director is great at every kind of movie. 
And, you know, we're, I guess we're going to see how Miss DuVernay develops. But who knows? We might learn that documentaries like 13th and historical dramas like Selma, that's her lane. And maybe she should stay in that lane. Or maybe she'll pull a John Favreau who, you know, did Cowboys and Aliens, which was awful, but also did Iron Man and, 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 and you know, and kind of almost single-handedly helped launch the MCU as we know it. So who knows? You know, at this point, the jury is out. All I know is right now, my feelings on Miss DuVernay are not very positive. But let's talk about the new gods in general, this idea of a new gods movie. Even that just doesn't make a ton of sense to me. Right now, if you think about what they just did in Justice League, let's think about that for a second. In Justice League, they purposely cut the legs off of Steppenwolf. He was supposed to be the mini-boss leading up to the final boss, who was Darkseid. He was supposed to kind of be what ushered in Justice League 2 and all of this sort of cosmic threat that was going to come to the Earth. And then what did they do? In the editing room and, and through all of Joss Whedon's changes that they asked him to do, suddenly all of that cosmic stuff is right out the window, and instead you have a post-credit sequence that teases us for the Legion of Doom instead of teasing us for Darkseid. So they just went out of their way to cut out the cosmic connection and to limit Darkseid's, you know, the mentions of Darkseid down to one fleeting moment in Justice League. And now you're going to get Ava DuVernay to direct a, a new Gods movie? Like, I don't understand. Um, I do have like one potentially cool thing that I could see coming from this in my ideal heart of hearts and my own fan fantasization to... Uh, to, to quote uh, something that we discussed earlier this week on the Revengers podcast, which, by the way, you should be listening to. We found our groove in this show. I'm officially very, very proud of it. Um, but anyway, uh, in terms of like doing the new gods at all, I, I don't see who thought this was a good idea. And, and look, I hate to be cynical, but this all feels kind of like, you know, reactionary trendiness. All right. And I, I, I don't want to be I, I might get into hot water for saying this, but you know what? Fuck it. It's my show. And I'm, I'm here to be honest with you. I'm not here to, to mince my words and, and, and guard anyone's feelings. Um, you know, Warner Brothers is in a, in a kind of vulnerable spot right now, as we know, after Justice League underperformed and, and you know, the brand ain't, ain't doing so hot. And right now, you know, the, the whole PC movement is very, very hot, right? The whole social justice warrior PC thing is huge right now. Everyone is super hot on getting female directors involved with big projects, and they're super hot on getting more people of color involved with these. And Warner Brothers, I'm sure, sees how, you know, Ava DuVernay checks both boxes. And not just that, but, you know, the Ava DuVernay brand is immune to negative headlines right now. You know, Wrinkle in Time is not a success story. It's really not. That, that subpar opening and the fact that it's about to drop to third place and just kind of you know, disappear into uh, media, you know, into obscurity in the, in the, in the weeks ahead. You know, it, it's not a success story. And yet you'd be hard pressed to see any negative coverage about this film. Everyone is just kind of focusing on the fact that Disney has the top one and two movies and how what a great time this is for sort of the equality movement. You know, the two top movies in the country are Black Panther and Ava DuVernay's A Wrinkle in Time, which, you know, all sort of spotlight people of color in a very positive way. And that is awesome. 
But right now, you know, that the glow of that subplot, the glow of that marketing approach, the glow of that type of coverage is totally obscuring and hiding the fact that A Wrinkle in Time sort of stalled out of the gate and is not a success story for Disney, a rare misfire for the company. So I, in, in my mind, at a time when Walter Hamada is reportedly trying to cut down on negative coverage and behind-the-scenes drama, hiring someone like DuVernay is a very safe choice. You know, it, it feels to me like a very safe corporate move. It's not one made with the creative well-being of the brand in mind. It seems more like, you know, if, if we announce this, no one's going to publicly knock us down and we're going to look like a great studio who's who's all about the inclusion. Listen, I, I hate to sound so cynical, and I could be totally wrong here, but I just, th th this doesn't smell right for me, and I'm having trouble seeing who the winners are in this scenario, aside from the positive, sort of politically correct coverage it's going to get them. Um, with that said, let's say this thing is awesome. And let's say they get a good writer in and the buzz on it is good. Uh, my, my little bit of like fan casting situation, not casting, that's the wrong word, but the, something that I think would be pretty epic is I've been a big proponent for a while of Patty Jenkins getting to do Justice League 2 if and when they ever get to Justice League 2. I think that would be an awesome progression for her as a filmmaker. Based on Wonder Woman, I think she could totally nail it. I want it. There's a lot of reasons. I'm actually planning on writing a whole thing on it uh, pretty soon about why she would be the ideal candidate all around. But with that in mind, imagine this. Imagine we get a Justice League sequel directed by Patty Jenkins and it interacts with Ava DuVernay's new gods and it does kind of go the dark side route. Listen, I don't think they're going to go that way because they really seem high on the Legion of Doom concept. But think about the the glow around that idea. How crazy would that be? What, what, uh, what kind of coverage win would that be for DC Entertainment to have Ava DuVernay's new gods, you know, uh, going up against Patty Jenkins' Justice League 2, it would be a total, you know, uh, people would eat that up in a heartbeat. And it would be a subplot that would definitely sell some tickets and bring a lot of audience members out of the, uh, you know, they'd come out in droves to check that out, just to, just for the novelty of getting to see that. But honestly, that's like the only positive I could see coming out of this at this juncture. I just, I'm not, I'm not getting it. And... The little bit of bochinche I can share, which unfortunately is very non-specific, is when you know last night, shortly after this news broke, you know I sent a message over to uh, to uh, you know a source of mine over there who I trust, and all I said was, "What is going on over there?" Meaning at Warner Brothers, where this source works, and they wrote back. And, you know, I wish there was something more specific here, but they did something rather unique. All they did was tease me. And I'm hoping they respond by, uh, you know, hopefully by the end of this recording. That'd be awesome if I could break some interesting news on you. But when I sent them the, uh, the question, what is going on over there? All they wrote back, this is from an inside Warner Brothers source. All they wrote back were three words. They wrote, wait for it. I don't know what that means. <laughs> and I wrote back like, what? What are you trying to tell me? D don't be so cryptic. So let's hopefully they get back to me. I don't know what it is. It sounds big. 
uh, I'm not going to pull a John Campia and tell you it's negative or what. I don't know what it is. So all all I know is somebody, you know, somebody in on the inside when I asked them what is going on over there, uh, just said, wait for it. So that tells me something big and interesting is on the way. And this is the same source, by the way. A couple of weeks ago, I mentioned something about uh, that there, w- there would be something Superman related uh, in the next week or so. And that came true. The, you know, the, uh, remember, like a week later, they released a, a, a bunch of Superman coverage for the home release of Justice League, including that really nice Superman-themed uh, poster. And that's what this person was talking about. So, you know, th- this person you know, definitely knows what they're talking about. They're, they're, they're close enough to the situation to even know how they're going to be marketing things. But uh, as of now, all they've said is, wait for it. So I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. I've got my phone open to my inbox here, and hopefully they get back to me soon for what wait for it means, what we're waiting for. Is it good? Is it bad? Is it a follow-up announcement to the new gods? I don't know. But all I know is they teased me. I'm on the edge of my seat, and now you guys can join me on the edge of my seat. And I promise you, whenever they do tell me what this it is that we're waiting for, you guys and the and the readers of RevengeOfTheFans.com will be the first to know, assuming it actually is as interesting as that tease uh, seems to be. So now let's switch gears. Let's talk some Marvel. Let's talk Avengers Infinity War. You know, the today was a big day. They finally released the second trailer. They put the tickets on sale. And uh, by the way, we already bought... A whole package of tickets. So if you are a uh, an, L, an L fanboy listener, a Revengers podcast listener, or a uh, a reader for RevengeOfTheFans.com in the New York tri-state area, you know the the details for the official Revengers Infinity War watch party are as follows. We're going to be seeing the film on Thursday night, April twenty sixth, the seven p.m. showing uh, at the Alamo Draft House in downtown Brooklyn. It's a really cool theater. They've, you know, they, they bring food and booze right to your table. You get table service during the movie. You could eat, you could drink, you could be merry. And we've basically locked down an entire row for uh, the Revengers watch party. So if you're interested in that, feel free to drop me a line at my email address, mfr at revengeofthefans.com. Already, I've got Brett and Vanessa from the Revengers podcast coming. I've got contributors Tony Artiga, Jeremy Scully, who's about to make his debut on RTF, by the way. He's an old LRM uh, contributor and longtime real-life friend of mine. So Jeremy Scully will be there. Uh, Possibly Rob Marrera. Uh, from what I hear, Brandon from the Medium Popcorn podcast has already asked me to set aside two tickets. And unlike what happened last year with Justice League, it sounds like he's definitely going to join us this time. <laughs> um, Brandon, if you're listening, I'm sorry, but you know you let me down last year. Anyway, so uh, Medium Popcorn podcast will also be in attendance, and there's more to come. So yes, yeah, so that is the information I wanted to pass along for the Revengers Infinity War watch party. If you want in, just let me know. We have an entire row, and uh, the spots are filling up very quickly. Aaron Verol is coming. Longtime listener Chris Lasanti is coming. By the way, too. A lot of really cool people are going to be there. So you can get you know you can watch the movie with us. 
we can socialize. We're going to go to the House of Wax bar afterward, which is right there located in the theater. It's a really cool, really chill, really atmospheric bar where they make great cocktails. And we're going to go there afterward and have like a post-mortem discussion on the movie, similar to what I did last year for the Justice League watch party. You know, we went to Station House in Forest Hills and we hashed out this movie and our feelings on it. And we got a little tipsy along the way. And who doesn't enjoy that? So there you go. There's the details on that. So beyond that, we got a new trailer today. Uh, I've watched it once, similar to with films. I don't tend to watch trailers more than once because I, I, I don't want to overanalyze them because I do want to walk into the films somewhat uh, fresh. And especially with the Avengers Infinity War, I'm, I'm firmly in the camp of I did not need another trailer. That's not a knock on the trailers. That's not a knock on the film. On the contrary, I don't, I didn't need any other trailers because I'm already sold. I don't need any other nudging across the line here for me to go see Avengers Infinity War. They're getting my money on day one. So I if, if they never released any more trailers, I would have been totally fine. But uh, stream of conscious style here, uh, watching the first trailer, just thoughts. I didn't write anything down. It looked epic. It looked intense. We had a lot of heroes in peril. We had Thanos looking like an absolute monster, and we got to see him in his helmet, and they really hype up what a threat he is and how he's going to be pretty much unstoppable. We see it. It looks like he's about to crush Thor's head. It looks like his forces are torturing Doctor Strange. It looks like he's hell-bent on killing... Uh, Tony Stark. And for me, what was a big thing is they mentioned the finger snap. Now, I, listen, I can't speak from like personal knowledge since I've never read these books, but I've had the finger snap explained to me. In fact, I had it explained to me by Brandon Alvarado, who's my cousin, and he's an RTF uh, contributor who writes all, all kinds of very interesting think pieces for the site mainly DC stuff. He loves The Flash and he's currently, he has an ongoing series about DC's live action films and the cues they could and should be taking from DC's animated adventures. But either way, last Christmas, you know, what is this? Two months ago, three months ago, we're at, we're, we're at our family gathering and he, he asked me about, oh, what do you think? Of the, do you think they're going to do the finger snap in Avengers Infinity War? And I just looked at him blankly because I don't know what that means. And he went on to explain to me that at some point, once Thanos uh, has the gauntlet, he uh, snaps his fingers and half of the Earth's population dies. And I, that gave me chills. Like The thought of that was insane. The visual of it, the impact of something that bold, it gave me chills and gave me like instant nightmare scenarios in my head. The idea that this villain is that powerful that he can do that. And then, of course, for the rest of the party, he was teasing me and he kept looking at me from across the room and snapping his fingers. And thanks a lot, Brandon. But anyway, uh, I found, you know, at the time I thought, OK, that's probably something so intense that they're not going to include it in the movie because, you know, it's intense to think that he, he's going to kill half the population or at the very least with a snap of a finger, kill a whole ton of people. And in this trailer, they mentioned the finger snap. So now I'm like, oh my God, they're really going to do this. They're really going to do this. Um, and I don't know, again, I don't know if they're going to scale down how many people die, 
But you got to assume at some point he's going to have the full gauntlet. You know, th this entire thing has been building towards whether or not he can get it. You've got to assume this is a two-parter. They keep saying heads will roll. They keep saying Thanos is this awful, scary, unstoppable villain. At some point, he will have the fully powered Infinity Gauntlet. And since they're talking about the finger snap, you've got to think they're going to do it. And a part of me wonders... If this film, since it is a two-parter, is going to end on a cliffhanger with a close-up of his hand and those fingers snapping, and then we go to black. And how powerful would it be, by the way, if they do that, it goes to black, and then there are no post-credit sequences. It would be like the first Marvel movie to never have it because they can't show you, they can't risk teasing where they're going from here because they want you to leave with just that feeling of dread. He gets that final stone, he snaps the fingers, and now you have to wait for the next film, you know, for the next Avengers movie. Because we know that the stuff that happens uh, between Avengers 3 and 4 takes place in the past, and they might have done that on purpose, because they don't want us to know what's happening in the present until Avengers 4 comes out. You know, Ant-Man and Wasp, I'm pretty sure it takes place shortly after the first Ant-Man, meaning it takes place before this movie. And we know that Captain Marvel is set in the 90s. And I'm just starting to think, like, maybe that's why they set things, you know, in the past for uh, in between Avengers 3 and 4. I could be wrong. I, I might just be spitballing in the wrong direction. If I'm wrong, feel free to tweet at me and let me know how insane I am. But just think about that and think about the, the chills if they did that. If it ends with the finger snap, the credits roll, and there's no funny business afterward. Now you're just left on the edge of your seat wondering, well, who survived the finger snap and who didn't? And we're not going to know until Avengers 4. And then you'd even watch the other MCU movies in between it with that feeling of, this is all in the past. I wonder which one of these characters might not make it into, you know, might have died in the next film. It, it's going to be, I think that would be a brilliant way to do it. It would get a lot of people talking, and that's just me just sort of spitballing there. But um, in terms of any other notes on the trailer, you know, I... Uh, I continue to think Loki's going to die. I think he's going to be one of the characters who's going to die. I can't shake this feeling that he's going to, you know, he's going to give Thanos the Tesseract, thinking like, all right, now you're going to make me a general in your army. And Thanos is going to prove how ruthless he is by killing him on the spot after taking the Tesseract. And that would be a crazy, you know, tragic thing for Thor to have to go through. It would have a huge impact on the audience since, you know, he, Loki, whether he's a villain or an anti-hero, he's frequently a crowd favorite. And it would be it would be crazy to see him go down like that. Just you know, have Thanos totally play him dirty. Um, but yeah, the, there was stuff in there that just has me thinking Loki is definitely not going to survive this. And the final note was, yeah, I, I the, the, the closing one-liner by Peter Parker just fell flat. I don't know if it did for you, but it did for me. When he was like asking Doctor Strange, like, hi, I'm Peter. And then he goes, I'm Doctor Strange. And he goes, oh, we're, we're using our fake names. Okay, then I'm Spider-Man. It felt sort of forced. It felt like, you know, at this point, the audience has become conditioned to like, after we see the title of the movie... We get five more seconds of movie in the trailer, and it's like a, usually a joke or a one-liner, and that's the one they went with. And I don't know about you, 
But after watching all of that intense stuff, watching Captain America and Doctor Strange and everyone fighting for their lives, I didn't really need a one-liner about you know from Peter Parker at the end of the trailer. I would have been fine without that. Um, but all right, so now you know something that I've been something that I've been mulling over is a an ongoing feature for the episode uh, for, for the podcast leading up to Avengers Infinity War where I would just share some MCU memories and recollections with you now that you know, we're 10 years into this and when Avengers Infinity War comes out it's going to be you know the big culmination event a big sort of you know it's going to wrap up 10 years of storytelling so I thought let's let's talk a little bit about the you know my own personal Road to Infinity War. Uh, this isn't going to be nearly as thought-provoking or as in-depth as the brilliant series that John Crabtree is currently writing for RevengeOfTheFans.com. He puts a new one up every week when I, you know, when he's not sick, of course. And if you're not reading those, you really should be. Uh, right now, he just finished. You know, this week he put up his his entry that focuses on Thor two, and it's got some really heartbreaking observations about our boy Loki. And I strongly recommend that. So what I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to go kind of movie by movie and just kind of share what I remember about it. So this is another thing where I didn't write it down. I'm just going to talk to you from the heart, try to, you know, remember where I was and what I was thinking as Marvel sort of slowly opened up this world for us. And I'm going to go chronologically. Um, I'm going to touch on all of phase one right now. So with Iron Man, the first one there... Um, I remember seeing it at the Midway Theater in Forest Hills with, uh, at the time she was just my girlfriend. It's funny to think how, how much has changed in 10 years, but in, in May of 2008, I had only been dating the woman who would become my wife and the mother of my two children for about three months at that point. And I remember we went to go see it. I had like a bunch of people with us and we had Jeremy Scully, um, and some other people. And I just remember being in love with the film. I remember, you know, I felt a little let down by the third act because I thought so much of the of the movie felt fresh and different and exciting. And then for me, act three of Iron Man is just pure cornball comic book movie storytelling 101 with the big over the top, you know, battle with iron monger. It just felt like it felt forced and it felt illogical too because Obadiah Stane could have just, you know, disappeared into the wind. He had the money and the resources and he could have just left. And instead he decided, I'm going to put on this big robot suit and fight you. Listen, I get it. It's a comic book movie and these kinds of things have to happen. But leading up to that, it had been so compelling and so sort of fresh that that third act to this day, I just go, ugh. But overall, I remember walking out of Iron Man thinking, this is really badass uh, this is very exciting. Uh, the post-credit thing with with Nick Fury, Samuel L. Jackson, was very novel and exciting at the time, especially since the Ultimate books had introduced a Nick Fury who was based on Samuel L. Jackson. So to now have him playing the role was crazy and sort of meta in a way and some very inspired casting. Um, and then that was sort of it. And then the next film on the docket was The Incredible Hulk with Edward Norton and Liv Tyler. And funny story about that, at the time, my dad was married to a woman named Liz, 
and she had her own policeman's magazine. You can't make this stuff up. She used to run a magazine out of our apartment called, I think it was called Policeman's Quarterly. She was the editor-in-chief and founder. And because of this, she used to get press screenings. It's funny to think that you, you, know, you write for a law enforcement magazine, but you can get press screenings for even that. And she did. And a lot of times when there was a movie that she didn't, uh, wasn't interested in, she'd give it to me. So I got to fake be a journalist back then. So we're talking 10 years ago, long before I had started writing for Movie Hole or Latino Review and, and getting everything, you know, uh, you know, in place for where we are now. I was just, let's see, 10 years ago, I was 24. I was just a 24 year old living in Queens and, uh, you know. I was not a journalist in any way, shape, or form, but I got to attend a bunch of screenings as if I were a member of the press, and I'd have to go up and say, hi, I'm Mario Robles with Policeman's Quarterly. Uh, and that's how I saw Incredible Hulk. And I remember thinking it was pretty cool because I got to see it before all my friends did, and I got to rub their faces in that. Um, and I remember actually loving the movie. You know, as someone who was has a big soft spot for the Bill Bixby uh, series from the 70s, I loved how this film sort of paid tribute to that. I loved how they brought back the whole thing, how when he is about to hulk out, his eyes glow green and all that sort of stuff. I love that they brought back the uh, the lonely man theme, that piano melody. You know, I love the hell out of that. Um, and they had a whole thing, a whole homage to that with him hitchhiking and the music playing. I'm like, yes. Um my, 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 my big issue with the film, which persists to this day, is how they tweaked his powers. They, they tweaked what it is that makes him hulk out. And I could not, I, I couldn't then, and I still can't, understand what, who thought that was a good idea. Part of what made the Hulk so interesting, uh, at least for me, was the fact that the powers were related to his temper. I feel like that's very relatable. I love the idea of a character who has this Jekyll and Hyde nature. He's soft-spoken and easygoing and mild-mannered most of the time, and he's willing to turn the other cheek and be a pacifist and just try to, you know, be a quote-unquote good person. But then when you push him just too far and you give him that, 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 that straw that breaks his personal camel's back, beware, because hell is about to break loose. And I loved the idea of Hulk for that. I've always enjoyed that aspect of the Hulk character and the Hulk mythology, that here's a character in Bruce Banner who has this thing inside of him, and now through the gamma rays, it makes it literal. Now, not only does he have to mind his temper because he doesn't want to risk hurting those he loves when he gets upset and saying something that he doesn't mean or throwing some sort of tantrum that makes them look at him differently, that no, now he will actually become a giant green rage monster. And I've always loved that. And in Incredible Hulk, they mystifyingly decided to make it about his heart rate instead of his temper. And to me, it's like, that's just not, I, th that makes it a million times less compelling if it's about heart rate. And it makes him like e even more tragic than he needs to be. Because if you think about it, <laughs> they made it so he, the, the guy can't even have sex. 
he can't make love to, to, to Betty. How cool is that? Isn't he going through enough already? And then they have that scene where they're in the hotel room and they're going at it hot and heavy. And then Bruce has to pump the brakes and say, no, we can't do this because, you know, I might hulk out in the middle of it. I'm like, this doesn't seem fair. This seems like you are really, you know, you're making Bruce Banner's life a true living nightmare if he, it's, he can't do anything that excites him. And I'm like, that's not what the Hulk is about. That's not what makes this character compelling. What makes him compelling is him fighting with his inner demons and trying to keep his temper in check. Not whether or not, you know, if he goes for a gym, goes for a jog on the treadmill, he might Hulk out because his heart rate jacks up. Like that, that just seemed like a very dumb way to go. And I'm glad that the MCU has more or less retconned that out and made it more about temper again. Um, but with that said, I still really enjoyed Incredible Hulk to this day. I will fight you about that movie. I really enjoyed it. I really liked the, the, the final battle with uh, Emil Blonsky as uh, Abomination. I thought it was rather inspired that they got an actor of Tim Roth's caliber to do this. Uh, and you got William Hurt in there. Yeah, it just I think people are unfairly cruel and savage towards the Incredible Hulk. Uh, I actually think that film is pretty damn good, save for that one mystifying creative liberty they took with what makes him Hulk out. Uh, then there was Iron Man 2, which I actually saw with my Revengers co-host, Brett Miro. Uh, I remember it was one of these things where like all of our friends had already seen it. We were the ones that had been left out because I either we weren't invited or we were busy. And he and I decided, fuck it, we don't need anyone else. We're going to go just us. So we went to go see Iron Man 2. And I remember, like, at this point, the, the negative feedback had already gotten back to me. It had already been sort of a thing where people talked about how disappointing it was and what a letdown it was after the first Iron Man. And so with my expectations at rock bottom levels, I remember thinking, this is actually an awesome movie. What is everyone talking about? And Brett and I kind of kept like looking at each other throughout the film with that same bemused look of who could hate this? Why are people mean about this? I remember, and this is going to be blasphemous. So if you are a religious person, uh, you might want to cover your ears for a second. But I remember at one point, leaning over to Brett and whispering into his ear, this is the best movie since Jesus. And I don't know, I, I honestly don't know what compelled me to say that. But, you know, there wasn't a movie called Jesus. I, I, don't, I honestly don't know to this day what compelled me to say that. But it's something that we reference still to this day. Here we are, I don't know, eight years later, and it, it's the best movie since Jesus is still a way to critique a movie. Um... So yeah, I remember thinking Iron Man 2, listen, you know, did it have some boring slogs there as they were trying to slip in some Avengers hype? Sure. Uh, but overall, I remember just enjoying it. It was a fun ride for me. I liked uh, Ivan Vanko, uh, played by Mickey Rourke. I think that was his name, right? I don't know. I always do these things without notes in front of me, so uh, bear with me. And I remember loving Sam Rockwell's, you know, Hammer. I thought he was a great foil to Tony and that whole element. I just, you know, that's another one where it's very popular to shit all over Iron Man 2, but I feel like if you actually watch it, it's not bad. You know, could I could could I could I do without ever having to see Tony face a guy in a mech suit? 
that'd be nice because you know that between Ironmonger followed by uh, Whiplash. Uh, I don't even remember who he fought in the third one, but I just feel like we've seen, you know, I don't need to see him versus a guy in a mech suit again. That's just, you know, that, that was my one thing to him. Like, I, this is feeling somewhat like familiar territory. Um, but yeah, so either way, Iron Man 2, I dug it. The next up was Thor and Thor to this day remains the only Marvel Cinematic Universe movie that I skipped in theaters. Um, that's how little I care about Thor and that's how little I cared back then about Thor, uh, that despite all of my interest in the MCU, uh, Thor was just a hard pass for me. I didn't have any interest in, in the, a guy in a red cape and a hammer and it just seemed sort of silly to me. So I, I skipped it. I waited till it came out on, uh, on home release. And then my, uh, my, my then, let's see, this came out. I'm going to do this right now with you guys on the line with me. Let's see. When did Thor come out? Because that'll be interesting for the chronology here. Thor was released on May 2nd, 2011. That's perfect. On May 2nd, 2011, that means that I had I had a newborn daughter a week before. So that also probably explains why I didn't see Thor. Wow, I'm just realizing that now live on the spot with you guys listening. Yes, if Thor came out on May 2nd, that's exactly a week after my daughter was born on April 25th. So yet another reason why Thor was far less than a priority. And so, and just to sort of look at the personal chronology of it, if when Iron Man came out, my wife, you know, my girlfriend and I had only been dating three months. By the time Thor came out, we had now been engaged about four months. So how do you like them apples? Well, actually, what am I saying? I'm, I'm, uh, you know, maybe I should do notes. We had been engaged for over a year, and we were getting married two months afterward. That's what happened. So it's, it's funny tracking my personal relationship around uh, the MCU timeline. Uh, but yeah, so Thor we saw on video eventually after the fact. Might have even been after we saw Captain America First Avenger because I just it was not a priority to me. Um, but my notes on Thor, once I finally saw it, you know, I thought, I remember thinking this is better than I gave it cre credit for. Um, but, you know, overall, it, you know, it, I, I did not lament not seeing it in theaters. It, it was fine. It was cute. It, I like the story about humbling of a god and him having to discover what it is to be a real person and then kind of get that silver spoon out of his mouth and figure out how to relate to others and to not be selfish. Listen, I, I dug all that, but the movie itself just didn't do a heck of a lot for me. Now, Captain America First Avenger, that film I saw the night before my wedding. It's, it's, it's funny. I was not planning on linking these movies to my relationship, but it's just kind of happening that way. But it's true. I saw Captain America, the first Avenger on Friday night, July 22nd, 2011. I'm not sure if that was opening weekend or not. It might've been, but yes, we, uh, you know, I had like a quote unquote destination wedding, yeah, but not really. It was like two hours up North of New York. So it's not like we flew anywhere fancy. But either way, me and all my bridal party, we went up there on Friday. We did the rehearsal, followed by the rehearsal dinner. And then me and my groomsmen, who includes three Revenge of the Fans writers, which are Brett Miro, Rob Marrera, and Jeremy Scully, uh, we went to go see Captain America First Avenger. And 
I love that movie. You know, maybe it's just because of where I was. You know, I was getting married the next day and I was surrounded by my best friends and I was feeling very sentimental. But this is another one of those Marvel films that it, it, it's popular for people to shit on it. I've read people say like, oh, Captain America is, one, is that rare superhero movie where it actually gets worse once the character gets his powers. And I'm like, fuck you. I don't disagree. I don't agree at all. Uh, for me, Captain America First Avenger was a very sweet, very thoughtful, very heartfelt superhero tale. And to this day, I get like an emotional lump in my throat when I think about the sequence there where uh, Tommy Lee Jones throws the grenade on the floor and, and, and puny Steve Rogers throws himself on it without thinking twice and calls for people to leave without even knowing it's a dud. To me, that is Steve Rogers in a nutshell, and I will always love and respect that movie because of that moment. That is what a true hero is. Steve Rogers is selfless. Steve Rogers will do anything for what he believes is right. I thought it just that that movie just captivated my imagination and it, it, it launched my love for Captain America. Um, and to this day, you know, I, I just I will defend that movie because I loved the, the depiction of Steve Rogers. I thought Hugo Weaving was badass as all hell as Red Skull. And I, that's another one. I will fight you about Captain America First Avenger. Um, and the next day I got married and it was the best night of my life. So, you know, uh, I have good memories. I have very good memories associated with that movie. And First Avenger is one of those things where whenever it's on TV, I watch it. doesn't matter if it just started. doesn't matter if, uh, you know, if, if it's we're only in the last act. doesn't matter if I saw it recently. If it's on, I'm going to sit and I'm going to watch it. I just love First Avenger that much. Um... Which then go finally brings us to The Avengers in 2012. Uh, that's a film, you know, I've already sort of covered this on previous episodes, so I don't want to rehash it. But that film, <laughs> it, it contains two visceral reactions of mine that I will never forget. It includes two instances of me geeking out so hard that I gave myself a headache and I blacked out and I damn near fainted. I've never done that in a movie. And that says a lot because mind you, before the MCU began, before Iron Man in 2008, I was not really a Marvel guy. I grew up on DC characters. Whenever I did collect comics, it tended to be DC comics. I just, I didn't really have an affinity outside of Spider-Man and Spider-Man was not part of the first couple of phases of Marvel. So I had no real built-in love for these characters or a real softness or nostalgia or affinity for them. But by the time Avengers arrived, I was so engaged and so gripped that I damn near lost my mind during two key moments. And they both involved the Hulk. I remember in, in during the battle for New York when when Bruce Banner pulls up on his little motorcycle or his moped or whatever that was and that giant thing is flying down Park Avenue. When he delivers that line of like, my secret is I'm always angry and he like while throwing a punch hulks out and then with a single punch takes down that entire fucking thing. I totally involuntarily jumped up 
out of my seat and I went, yeah! And I screamed so loud that, I, the, and you know, like when you get that head rush when you've been sitting down for a long time and you stand up. So I dealt with all these things at the same time. I spring up, I get the head rush, I scream, and then my eyes go black, my brain starts to throb, and I have to sit down because I get like an instant almost migraine from that visceral response. So I will never forget that because no movie before or since has ever made me do that. Then, you know, of course, I got all the feels with that very famous tracking shot, the Joss Whedon shot, where you see every hero get to do something, you know, on land, in the air, in the buildings, you know, that, that huge epic shot of like, this is what we've been building towards. This is the moment that phase one has built towards. Here are the Avengers as one well-oiled team taking down the bad guys. And I loved that shot, but the next time that I blacked out, was also Hulk, and it was when he grabbed Loki by the ankles and smashed him to smithereens. You know, the, the infamous puny god moment. Uh, I don't know, I don't even know what it was, because it's not that special a moment. In fact, you could, uh, you could probably say it's kind of on the cornier side. But seeing Hulk's, you know, like pure brute strength and seeing him do that to Loki after they they built up Loki as this formidable villain. And I just, I remember it's another one where I jumped up, I shouted, and then blacked out and had to sit down again. Um, so that movie for me will always hold a very special place in my heart. Um, and that's it. So th th that does it for this week's uh, Marvel memories. Um and I, I kind of think that's it. I kind of think that's it, guys. I, I, I have to interview someone in a couple of minutes, so I need to try to prep for that. Keep checking revengeofthefans.com for updates. I just looked, and my uh, my WBDC insider has not yet responded to my query about what it is that we are quote-unquote waiting for. But uh, as soon as I hear something, you guys will be the first to know. Thanks for listening. Wish me luck on my big wedding tonight, and uh, everyone have a happy and safe weekend. Enjoy Tomb Raider, which seems to be pretty good, and it's the big opening movie this week. That's you know, I mean, it's going to be fed like a lamb to the slaughter for Black Panther, but from what I hear, according to Vanessa and, and, and several others, Tomb Raider might actually be worth a shot. So if you're looking for a movie, I think you should totally check that out. And this week's recommendation is, uh, I mentioned it on the Revengers pod, but it's worth noting, you should check out Everything Sucks on Netflix. Everything Sucks, I think, is a beautiful little series, and uh, I'm way... I'm way hyped on it. But okay, guys, thank you so much for joining me for these last 54 minutes. And until next week, adios.